Hello and welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is part three of our interview with Dr. Jonathan Tran. We'll go ahead and jump right in. I hope you enjoy it. I know this is not your area, but how does climate and the climate fight fit in here? Because it is all kind of intersectional. Do you, would you like to comment on that or not? Yeah, it's a great question because the great analogy to what racism is doing, you know, what we're doing to each other through racism is what we're doing to the planet, um, right? It's it's the same logic. It's yeah. the same ideological justification. So in the same way, I, you know, so one thing we need to remember is that slavers, plantation owners, people who have lots of slaves, they did not enslave those people, quote unquote, because they didn't think they were human. They, they fully thought right. they knew they were human. The, 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 the work of the enslaved person required ingenuity of the human. Um, and, you know, and so it's never, it's never a question of whether they thought they were human. They fully knew they were human. They created justifications to dehumanize it. What the logic went that way. It wasn't like a large metaphysical mistake that excuses slavers too easily. Um, so it's always the, it's always the exploitation, the domination, right? The, the, the taking of of what is others and making it and possessing it and hoarding it on our own. And then the ideological veneer of justification, right? Same thing we do to the earth, right? We make these special claims. Well, it's just an animal or, mm-hmm. you know, who, who cares about the earth? You know, we're Christians, we're going to heaven, but that's all ideology. The driver is profit margins, domination, wealth extraction, et cetera, et cetera. This has always been the driver to, uh, to human history. Uh, And so it's that that then comes with the ideological justification. Given your your questions so astute, given that it's been surprising to me how seldomly that analogy is seen for what it is, um, that issues of environment, issues of racism are seen as completely separately occurring realities, whereas they're the same logic. And so one of the things I do in the book is I study different communities that are really committed to anti-racism. And it's rare that they're also really committed to questions of environment. I mean, the, the, the earth killer is climate, as we all know, right? I mean, yeah. we're, we're veering on plus two, two degrees Celsius, and the number of people that will die from that alone, say the difference between two degrees and 1.5, is astronomical. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the, that's the clear analogy in my mind. Yeah, it's just I you can't separate them. You're talking about the, you know the neoliberal capitalism, the banking, the corporations, all of that is is showing up in the climate discussion as well and it's hard to get people to talk about it in in similar ways. They just don't, you know, want to engage in the conversation, but it's so important um to acknowledge what's actually going on with with a lot of these systems. One of the things that the, the, the anti-racist folks can learn from the environment folks is that when we think about environmental questions, it's clearly a question of political economics. Like no yeah. one doubts that it's a political economy question, set of questions. For racism, so for some reason, we think about these interpersonal questions, right? And so now, like, for example, there's a lot to learn from the environmental struggle, right? Because what, one of the things we're learning, maybe one of the tiny bits of good news is the re- realization that renewable energy is actually quite profitable, mm-hmm. that a world that's economically based on renewable energy is a much more profitable world. 
than one used based on fossil fuels. We're learning that and, and it's changed drastically in say the last five to 10 years. That means that it gives us somewhere to begin to think about these questions, right? By right. thinking about actual material and peril and commitments, like whether a city government is going to invest in electric cars, um, that gives you a way to think about this as a political economic reality. We need an analogous, right, material things in terms of how we think about these questions. That's that's my point in bringing up the wealth disparity in relationship yeah. to the racial wealth disparity. There's empirical things. Once you move to the broader frame of, of political economy, the problem with the personalistic claim around racism, and you're a racist, I'm a racist, I'm not a racist, y'all are racist because you're white, et cetera, et cetera, is it's, it brings a lot of heat, but does very little work. Um, and that, and, you know, those of us who have sat in the DEI things, that's exactly what it is. It's a lot yeah. of heat. It seems like it's doing a lot of work, but I don't know about y'all's experience, but the heat of the come to Jesus moment in the DEI training is a lot like the heat of the Saturday night of the evangelical retreat. That is a lot of people will convert to Jesus or recommit themselves to Jesus. But Sunday, they come down from the mountain, go back to the regular lives and do the regular thing. So the, the, the intense heat around kind of diversity trains never actually materially connects. And that's because we're thinking about it in these kinds of narrow ways versus I think most of us realize if, if we're going to save ourselves from global death heat, it's going to be a lot of political economic interventions. Yeah. Okay. Can I say we do swear on this podcast? That was fucking brilliant. Oh. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Comparing it to revival. I come out of a revival culture, so oh, yeah. nicely yeah, done. The, the group I became Christian into also was really into that kind of stuff. But you know, you just realize after a while it's it's an awesome Saturday night, and then you get just, you know. <laughs> and then Monday morning you're exhausted and you're like Everyone, back to normal. Everyone's exhausted doing the regular thing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the environment thing is like. Look, we don't give an F about how you feel about it. This stuff works better than that stuff. I think right. that's, you know, Ibram Kendi, you know, however people feel about Ibram Kendi, I think gets it right in how to be a racist. He's like, for a long time, I sat around thinking as a black man, I wish white people thought better of me. Uh, and, you know, this, the struggle is to get them to think more favorable things about me as a black man. Now I don't give a shit. What I care about is let's look at the structures and systems that are obviously unjust and let's change them. How yep. you feel about me is immaterial to that question. Yep. And I think I'm increasingly in that world. For sure. I like that. So we had the things that are important, obviously, I mean, food, housing, employment, healthcare, education, all these, these are all systems that we're all part of. Um, I'd love to hear some hopeful examples, and I know you have them, of some of your research, where you, uh, you've seen people subvert the norm, so to speak, um, live out possibilities of a of a you know a heaven on earth uh, so to speak that, that jesus talks about and that as as a christian you're like yes this is, this is sort of the stuff that we're supposed to pray and live into um can you can you give the, the listeners out there and us some examples of of what that could look like to be a, a not only a thoughtful anti-racist within this within all these crazy systems but to fully live that out in in the you know, hands and feet of Jesus kind of way. Yeah, and, and the picture I offer is maybe somewhere between uh, heaven and earth and less hell on earth, um, somewhere <laughs> in the middle of that, uh, which is, you know, if, if we're talking about um, 
racial capitalism being a political economic or just say a political economy built into these structures and systems and the ways that it forms individual souls, right? Like we can't, we, we perpetually underestimate what a society built on consumption does to the individual, right? We talked about how race and identity politics distracts from that, but it's also the case that it does damage to us as human beings. It produces what one theologian calls a diseased imagination, right? So if you have to perpetually think, well, it's natural to who they are. That just makes you a racist person. You're going to trade in racist attitudes uh, and you're going to justify the world by blaming folks. And, you know, in the language of Cornell West and Stanley Hauerwas, capitalism produces shitty people. It makes us people who are not bound by compassion, not thinking in terms of how we serve our neighbors. So let's say we live, we inherit a world of tremendous inequality, um, a tremendous exploitation, rather than saying, well, how do I as a Christian serve my neighbors in that? We train ourselves to think, how do I make money off of that? That's the diseased imagination of, of capitalism, right? So, so if these are structural and systemic realities, then the redress has to be structural systemic. And you can think about structural, and, and, and right, you mentioned this earlier, you can think about structural and systemic in multiple scales and scopes. You can think structurally, right? So there's large movements afoot about like maybe reparations and redistributing income, that it's, it's just too late to try to correct things. We actually need to break, abolish a system, right? In the same way that um, abolition was the correct response to plantation chattel slavery, Maybe there's an, an equivalent form of abolition now in terms of our political economic systems. So there's certainly people that think in those terms. Uh, there are people who think more, can we work within the system that we have? Can we make democracy more democratic? Can we, you know, can we think about how housing in ways that serve families and communities and not just the banking industry around which housing is built in the US? Um, so there are certainly people thinking about that. Um, I think the where I pitch things in the book isn't at the level of mass redistribution. It's not at the level of uh, even local federal governments or local uh, city governments, state governments. All those are important. And I would never want anyone to think that the remedies I suggest at the local church level means or precludes those other approaches. I do have questions about whether people can survive those processes with their souls intact, given the appropriation that we're talking about. In other words, if it's as bad as we think, then it's never going to be as easy as, well, I'm just going to lean into that world and, and make it better. Um, I think there have been many goodwill people who have been kind of sucked into those systems and, and kind of, um, you know, spit out. But uh, I still think they're worth pursuing because that's what hope is, right? Hope is always mm -hmm. leading into something where there's not a lot of reasons to do so other than your hope. But where I'm really interested in is how local communities can do this. And I focus specifically on religious communities and specifically Christian ones. In the first half of the book, I document the way Christians are complicit in exploiting, right? How they're complicit in racial capitalism. But in the second half of the book, I try to give a lot of attention to one specific uh, religious community, um, Redeemer Community Church in San Francisco, of folks who try to lean into what I call the God's deep economy. So if the political economy of racial capitalism is one that uses ideolo ideology to justify exploitation, 
then we can lean into a different political economy, which the church has called since the beginning of its life, the divine economy, um, the economy of God, which is an economy of grace. It's the opposite of exploitation. It's one that sees the world not as scarcity, not as a resource or a commodity, rather sees the world as a gift. The entire structure of our existence as creatures are gift insofar as we exist at all, right? We are, God is the one who has, by God's nature, has to exist. We're the ones that exist by, by luck, really, by contingency, by gratuity, God's grace. So God creates us. So the very fact of our existence um, speaks to this grace. Uh, this grace, of course, is uh, maximally affirmed in Christ's life and uh, death and resurrection. It's the claim that creation is made for this kind of thing, um, for self-giving, for other giving. Um, and so I try to give a theology that then helps explain the real miracle of these people's lives, which is ordinary Christians like any of us who find say, a company of like-minded Christians who then kind of commit to local communities and neighborhoods, uh, which are like, you know, the, the epicenter of global racial capitalism. In this case, the most marginalized part of San Francisco, the Bayview-Hunters Point neighborhoods. Uh, and in these communities, they kind of partner with local Black churches, um, in religious communities, Asian Americans uh, who graduated from nearby places of significant privilege, Stanford University, Berkeley, UCLA, uh, and get in their mind, uh, Jesus is A, um, on the side of the oppressed, and B, um, Christians should do similarly <laughs> to Jesus. And so uh, Redeemer Community Church exists in the Bayview Hunters Point area, and because they live there, they see the material needs and opportunities and great hope and beauty of these local communities and they invest their lives in them uh, out of it they created a software company that's for profit um, that they use the profits to redistribute money into local communities supporting local businesses uh, from being there for a couple of decades they realized one of the things people most need is access to decent education because the educational system is, of course, also built into these local political economies, and it tends to benefit a certain class of people. Certain racial groups continuously are not given access. And so they created a local elementary school, middle school, uh, or middle school and the high school um, that then gives free access to education for local kids, the majority of whom are black and brown and, and say migrant Asian communities um, in very poor neighborhoods. And so uh, that's what they're doing. They're doing it not because as they would say, they're extraordinary people, they're doing it because this is what it means to lean into God's deep economy. Um, and so they already have a sense of their own happiness. They already have a sense of what beauty looks like. And they are people who are rigorously trying to avoid the shitty formation of capitalism, um, which, you know, you could be pretty sure was promised to them at places like Stanford and Cal, mm -hmm. um, so promised to them by Silicon Valley um, uh, entrepreneurial culture. And so these people have intentionally chosen against that um, and committed to these local communities and their local form of politics. So it'd be like a form of a, a new monasticism in a lot of ways. Yeah, they very much have been formed by 
uh, new monasticism movements, which uh, for, for listeners are movements that imagine Christians as what Christianity is, is baptismal and Eucharistic. It's you're born, you're raised, and you know, you're saved into community. So salvation, that baptism names both your salvation in Christ, but also your salvation in a community. Um, and the Eucharistic ideas around the one given body, Christ, is the gathered body of Christian believers. One of the difficulties is part of the part of the going back to the DEI stuff, a lot of the difficulty is the unimaginable burden placed on any individual coming out of a diversity training. Like it's on you. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's on me to live faithfully, I'm just, I just, it's this, I just, I'm not going to be up to it. But if I'm called with a group of people who do things, not because they're good, but because they are repentant people who love being with other people. Um, and those other people are also collectively committed to the good, the true and the beautiful. Then, then faithfulness looks like what, what church life looks like. People gathering on a Sunday morning, they think the best thing they can do in a world of extraordinary oppression and domination is worship Jesus together. And out of that common life, the overflow, the abundance of that common life, it just never occurs to them to live any differently than the people at, at Redeemer and how they live right i mean one of the best stories in the in the book is of a young woman who was at stanford right and at stanford you're you're uh given two things at once the world's going to hell in a handbasket and you're at stanford to save it <laughs> you're you're especially well positioned that's why you're at stanford well she describes being just overwhelmed by this sense of moral responsibility that no individual can bear right and so um, she leaves Stanford for a quarter, quarter and finds her way to Redeemer. What she found there was people doing the very kinds of things you were doing, they're calling you to do at Stanford, but doing it in the regular ways in which you raise children together and worship together and, you know, get beers together um, on, a, on a Monday or Tuesday night and talk about life. It's out of that commonness with neighbors Uh, that you imagine new futures together. I guess that just leaves me wondering, though, how does that respond to these huge forces that we're working against? Um, I totally love that that's happening in a local community. And I see that in activism communities that I work with here in Denver. But how does that influence these larger structures? Or do we not try to? No, I mean, you, of course, you want to believe it does, right? So you, so one of the reasons I call it deep economy is I want us to think about political space as ecology. Going back to your question earlier, what is ecology? The deep interconnection of all things. And so the problem with much of our ecological life is we seem to pretend it doesn't connect to anything else. If yeah. I go out and drive a car, it doesn't affect, um, right? The ozone layer that you know helps warm the earth and not make it too hot simultaneously. Um, and so ecological thinking is the, the recognition that things are, all things are connected. The language of Pope Francis in La Rousseau, you know, our common home, the, the very, very well-known phrase, all things are connected. It's, it's, it does violence to the world to make you believe that somehow you're disconnected from it, or maybe even that you stand above and outside of it. So I want us to think, that the large scale questions of redistribution and reparations is not disconnected from individuals being formed to think precisely in those ways 
by their local communities and uh, the power of religious communities to fire the imagination, right? And I'm on, I just got a grant that studies religious communities across the board, not just Christian ones. Say, how do Islam, how does life in the mosque fire the imagination uh, for an ecological interconnection in the world um, based on, say, their reading of, of scriptures? So yeah, so you want to imagine these things as connected. Now, a good question is, is some of the belief in the connection fanciful? Um, probably, but we don't know. Um, I mean, the benefit of being in a place like Denver, as I understand Denver, a place like Waco, is that there actually is pretty some pretty powerful interconnections that are traceable between local and state governments, mm -hmm. between school boards and the parents of the kids who go to those schools. Even if there wasn't that connection, and we're never sure where those connections are being severed by the neoliberal political order that's trying to de-democratize things, even if not, you know, what I try to think is if every church did a little bit more like Redeemer, and we'd be in a much better place, right? It's just like if every family thought about getting an electrical car or thought about their footprint, it may not be the large-scale moves that we need to rethink, say, wealth disparity, but it would be something. Um, and so whether you think about these different kinds of models and how they, how they politically happen, uh, I want us to think about them in, in interconnected ways. Um, and then if we can think about them in interconnected ways, then we'll be, we can be increasingly responsible for the connections. We fight against the de-democratizing, but also at all kinds of levels and scales and scopes. We think not only locally, but to think locally is to think globally, right? And vice versa. Yeah. So I think there are ways that we can push out from the local to beyond. But your point is well taken. It doesn't often go that way, but it can, or at least maybe we want to commit we want to commit ourselves to a picture of the world ecologically that they could. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's ground up stuff. So, you know, Janelle, you driving your leaf around town, and <laughs> my wife driving her leaf around town makes others go, hmm, that's a weird looking car. What's that about? And then more leafs, and then suddenly people on other levels go, Perhaps we should put something in place to take care of these electric cars and these. Yeah, cars. I mean, you know, I was just listening to a podcast going back. Uh, I was listening to a podcast earlier today that showed, well, now, amazingly, five years in a short five years, renewable energy is more profitable than mm -hmm. than. Um, and, and it was because people committed to driving leaves and committed to that in the face of people thinking, what the hell are you doing driving a leaf? Right. I mean, when I first got to Baylor. Uh, you know, the idea of vegetarianism was, you know, not simply strange. It was like, you're asking to be, you know, taken out and strung up, you know. Exactly. But now I notice that Baylor, like vegetarianism is a pretty common option among our undergrads, right? And so that has massive implications in terms of, say, the, the factory production of, pro uh, of protein. Um, and, say, and it certainly has effects on, say, how this chicken is raised, how that cow is going to be raised. So, if we can, the, 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 you know, going back to your, your question, Janelle, it's the analogy to environment and how the environment has helped us to rethink how we think about basic life. That's an analogy that's incredibly important for questions of racism and anti-racism. And we need to deeply lean into them because they are both questions about a political economy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. So now, I mean, now you have like major corporations like the NFL that's, that's rethinking how it, how it has personnel on the sidelines. I mean, that's that never would have been a question five years ago, right? So I think all these things are, yeah, it is definitely all interconnected for sure. So 
even even the voices on on Twitter and Facebook as annoying as they can be can make can make a difference. Um, yeah, that, so many different examples, but um, yeah, as a, as the little person, right? As a, somebody who, like you're saying, drives a leaf car or is on Facebook, or some some of you who are either stay at home parents or you're a teacher at elementary school. I mean, I think there's ways in which we can uh, we underestimate, I guess, ourselves, right? And, and just li- living out, like you were saying, that that that. Uh, that, is that a deep divine economy? What is that? You, what was, yeah. what was reading there? I was reading uh, a, a reading a biography of the great civil rights, um, but largely unknown civil rights person who's a deep mentor to um, MLK Bayard Rustin. And Rustin was one of the civil rights workers who clearly understood the connection between class um, and race. And part of it is because you know he was also a, a closeted or semi-closeted homosexual in a world that was deeply, deeply homophobic, uh, including civil rights workers were deeply homophobic, um, uh, class um, organizers were deeply homophobic. So it put him on the outside of everything in a sense. But it talked about how his grandmother, who was a Quaker, <laughs> um, African-American Quaker, instilled in her grandson this deep humanitarian commitment to other humans as humans, um, to see the individual as a site of extraordinary political and moral agency. Um, And if you can commit to the individual as an individual, regardless of the kind of essentializing that race or these kinds of things do to people, if you can retain that sense of the deep humanity of the pub, right, Uh, the brewery and the people that go there, uh, then that gives you an eye into the world uh, that it gave Rustin, which is how do we work towards the oppression of, I mean, the freedom of oppression for all people as people, um, not as political categories, not as racial identities. Uh, and I think this humanism is something that we need to reclaim in our politics. Um, you know, the recognition that that person may be X, Y, and Z, they're a human being. And so am I. And there's possibilities of new political consensus based simply on that. Yeah, that's a good reminder all the time. Yeah. This was awesome. Uh, We could probably talk for another hour or two, but uh, we want to respect your time. Jonathan, thank you for your time and for for your your education, your ministry, the work that you do, not just at Baylor, but across uh, the nation and, and the world. So... You can get uh, your latest book, which came out November of 2021, Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism, on any of those platforms in which you buy books. And we we may have a discount code for you. I just I do have a discount code because at the end of the day, the last word in the book is capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> so so if we, I guess if we go to the show notes, we'll put it in there for people. Yeah, we won't tell you. You have to actually look. So that way. When you go to the episode, you can like it and share it. This is, this is all part of how we're interconnected online. <laughs> you know, write a review on Brew Theology, share it online with your friends, and hashtag Brew Theology, and maybe hashtag Baylor. I don't know. Uh, get Baylor to listen to this. Yeah, we'll let you do it. It's fine. <laughs> well, you know, Jonathan was a blue devil, but he went. He did go to the light. He moved away from the dark side. <laughs> nice. There is hope for all of us. Yes. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, y'all. Yeah. I am curious, what holiness tradition did you come from? 
Well, I became a Christian in an inner varsity Christian fellowship. Okay. Uh, and inner varsity at that time was largely under the influence. I don't know if you, if you're old enough to remember this, but um, there was a, the vineyard was very powerful yep. at that point in a kind of American Pentecostalism and uh, specifically the, the ministry of what was called the Toronto blessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that was huge. So the, it was interesting, the kind of deep connections to social justice was bred through a kind of vision of the spirit as enabling that very life because, you know, or say, you know, middle upper middle-class suburbanite kids to be committed to issues of poverty and racial justice. <laughs> you needed some spirit in there. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the Pentecostal movement that really gave that. Okay. Yeah. Those Toronto revival stories are insane. Yeah. Like all I was the stories I, about I animals. One of those revivals at one point and, and it was, <laughs> One of the craziest Pentecostal experiences I ever had. Yeah. That'd be for another podcast about our Pentecostal stories. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be fun.